We continue our sermon series on Children of Light. We're actually finishing up this week. We've been focusing on 1 Thessalonians and what Paul had a chance to be able to write back to the Thessalonians who were under such great persecution. So here are these words today from the fifth chapter, uh, beginning with the 12th verse. And part of what we are, I'm reading here is actually, as Sean wove it into our lit- liturgy this morning, it's just beautiful. Here are these words. Uh, but we appeal to you, uh, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have what well, charge of you and the Lord and among you, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all them. See that none of, none of what you repay with evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, Paul says. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. Hold fast, Paul says, to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. Beloved, pray for this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, amen and amen. So I was going through some of my archives this last week and it was, it was about weddings. And so I started thinking about weddings. And um, so I, I, can you remember your, uh, your favorite wedding or, a most, at least, or maybe your most memorable wedding? I've done lots of weddings in my day over the last 35 years, you know. And so um, I started thinking about uh, Kim and Brent Porter, I, I think we mar- maybe married maybe 20-something years ago. And it was just a beautiful, I mean, they looked like Barbie and Ken. They were just a beautiful couple. Matter of fact, um, I wasn't at my church. It was at Quezon United Methodist Church um, down the road. Um, they had made arrangements to be able to use this uh, beautiful church there. The well, reason why a lot of people actually from all over the community wanted to go get married in that particular church because it had beautiful stained glass windows. It had a big pipe organ. They had a long center aisle. Um, and, it, and they had this beautiful, beautiful chancel, like mahogany wood. And it was just, oh man, it was amazing. So I, what I remember about that particular wedding was, um, I know that uh, Kim's mom and dad evidently spared no expense because they had literally had dozens and dozens of white roses, big bouquets, beautiful white roses everywhere. There had to be hundreds of them over here and over here. I remember as she came down the aisle, she was just gorgeous. Brent was, looked uh, very handsome. And the, uh, you know, the uh, bridesmaids came in, they were beautiful. Uh, the groomsmen came in, and we had, a, I believe, a flower girl and uh, um, a, a, a ring bearer, um, a little ring bearer. I think his name was Trevor. And so we're, and, and so listen, once again, this was just an amazing wedding. They even brought in like this opera person that came and sang the Lord's Prayer. It was just amazing. So I get into the very end of this particular wedding, and everything is just kind of moving along as we, you know, kind of clicking along, and, and everything's going fine. And so... Um, as I listened to the opera singer of the Lord's Prayer, I looked down and there's little Trevor. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with that kid? And so he's been over like this. And I, and I think all of a sudden I said, what is going on here? Well, you know what? Nobody had reminded Trevor that he needed to go to the bathroom before the ceremony. And he had began to wet his britches, began to pee. 
And so there he goes. I mean, this is going over the mahogany wood. And it's like starting to dribble down the, you know, the steps. Like, oh my gosh, we can't have this in the middle of the Lord's prayer. So I looked over and no one now saw this except me. So I reached over I kind of, I said, Trevor, it's, I'm going to wrap this up, buddy. Give me about two or three minutes and you're going to be able to go to the bathroom. And he just goes, okay. I'll never forget that. That poor kid. You know, it's funny because, you know, when I think about wedding ceremonies, there's um, three things I think are really, really important when it comes to a wedding ceremony. Uh, The first one is um, uh, the Lord's Prayer. At every memorial, every, every one of my wedding ceremonies I've ever done, we've always had the Lord's Prayer. It's woven into the liturgy, actually the whole fabric of this. I, I love the Lord's Prayer. It's beautiful. Either it's even going to be read, or we, I mean, we pray it together, um, or someone's going to sing it. Uh, that's really important. The second thing I found that in every wedding I've ever done, um, I always read 1 Corinthians 13, uh, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Y'all say that with me, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, so I always read that. And then I think really is, I think one of the most important and sacred moments of a wedding ceremony is the marriage vows. And um, a vow, or really when it comes to your marriage vows, it's a covenant. Matter of fact, it's woven right into the liturgy of the of of the of what the when you take the marriage vow, it's a part of what we talk about or what I share with the bride and groom. So the word covenant means promise. So you know, once again, when I was married, Donna, um, our marriage vows: I herald take thee, Donna, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. I thereto pledge thee my faith, and that's what I told my wife. By the way, I had that memorized. <laughs> and, um, and so, I mean, we've taken that very seriously. So I was thinking about this week, and once again, I, I kept coming back, thinking about that wedding and all the weddings I've done, that whole theme about faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Who said that, Paul? Okay, so let me teach for a second. So can you put that first slide up on the screen? Because, um, so here, I'm gonna give you... Um, this is actually very interesting because I, once again, I started to think about the key things that Paul, and Paul in his theology, and he would actually, when he wrote to um, First Thessalonians, there's this theme that we find over and over again. And so as I shared with you all last week, there's the overarching theme when it comes to uh, Thessalonians is the key word, and we would call this faithfulness. And the reason why this is so important is because, once again, the the Thessalonians are getting hammered. I mean, you know, Paul has, was there, he was about there three months, and then he had to run for his life, and he ended up going down to Berea, down the road, and then the people who were like, the, they were trying to uh, actually uh, get him, and they had to, to be able to flee, and they came and tried to get him down to Berea, and he had to go down to Athens, and he ends up in Corinth, and he's writing back from Corinth back to, to the Thessalonians. And so he's trying to have them hold tight to their faith. So he sends Timothy back, and of course, Timothy comes back and reports back to to Paul and says, Paul, they're, not, they're not, not tanking, but they're actually thriving and they're remaining faithful. And so Paul is so excited. So when he writes back, he, he's encouraging them and he says, hold on to your faith. So the overarching thing that we find in First Thessalonians is faithfulness. Now, the key words here, what's again, and I'm pretty clear about this, is that the key word down here, I'm gonna write this word, is faith. And the key word over here has to do with love. And the key word up here, as I taught last week, was the word hope. And the, hope, the, second, the word hope here has everything to do with, once again, the second coming. 
And we talked about the promise that Paul is writing back because evidently someone died in their church and they're asking, they're questioning, when's Jesus coming back? And so Paul tries to clarify that. He says, we don't really know, but Paul, as Jesus makes it very clear, he says the most important thing that in Jesus' teaching when it came to the second coming, you need to be prepared. Can we amen on that? Okay, so we have, we have faith, hope, and love, okay? And so we have, what's, once again, um, we have the key word about pleasing, and I share with you all that. It's a key word for pleasing too, and the word over here is worthy, and that has to do with, and these key words, pleasing has to do with faith, and worth or worthy has to do with love, okay? So when I was thinking about this whole thing this last week about faith, hope, and love, it's really kind of a trilogy, isn't it? And then I started thinking about our Trinity. And by the way, once again, let me just teach for a second about the Trinity. This, by the, I thought this was amazing. I didn't realize this. The greatest Christian symbol in the, in the church is this. And you all know this. It's a cross, right? And I share with you all, when you think about Paul's teaching of Thessalonians, it has to do with faithfulness, but it has to do with faith, hope, and love. And of course, we believe that Jesus ultimately is in the center of all this, right? Amen on that? Okay, so, so it's very interesting. So we have faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And so what I thought was very powerful, the second greatest symbol in the Christian church is this triangle. It's the symbolism of the Trinity. It's been around since actually the fourth century. I thought this was very interesting when I was doing my research for this sermon, is that when in the first century, or the fourth century, when they talked about the symbolism, and you can find this in the ancient uh, 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 when it came to symbolism and artwork and so forth, and when they were talking about symbols, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the f- I thought this was very powerful. The, um, the first symbol had to do with God, and it's the hand of God. The second symbol has to do with Jesus, and he's the Lamb of God. And the third symbol has to do with the Holy Spirit, which is the dove of God. You feel like, Follow? So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And by the way, what's interesting, they see the circle around it, which means eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is forever and ever and ever. And so I, when I was thinking about my sermon preparation, I thought, once again, I went back to the Trinity, but I thought, well, what was very powerful about the Apostle Paul and his teaching? It was all very, and once again, has kind of three key things. And we find this over and over again, not only in 1 Thessalonians, but we find it in Corinthians and Galatians and throughout the scriptures that Paul wants to hold on to. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So last week, I, I shared with you all and I mentioned just about that key word, hope. And, um, and I got a lot of really positive feedback on my sermon last week. And I was asking myself, why did that happen? And um, I thought, oh, and one of, my, one of the emails that I got from one family in our church who um, wrote to me, and I, I thought, okay, well, here's the answer. And it had to do with, um, evidently, one of them had lost, well, they lost their nephew. And um, evidently, he was um, uh, maybe in the middle age and had some health issues and cancer. And, and they watched the sermon last week. And what I got from this email is that they finally realized, yes, Jesus Christ, our Lord, rescued him and took him home last Friday. And for that, we are so very, very grateful. And she says, Pastor Hill, I just want you to know the worship service when it was over, we all felt so incredibly relieved and the weight of the world had been lifted from our shoulders because we got peace from the worship service. And it was, 
Uh, and so I started thinking about the whole theme about hope. So Paul says, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Can you say it with me? Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So what I thought was really powerful, I think why, the reason why uh, so many people kind of resonate evidently with that week of my sermon last week about hope it's because, I don't know if you all look around, but most of us are in the third or fourth chapter or the third or fourth quarter of our lives, okay? And, and we want hope. We need hope. We want the promise of hope. And that's what Paul is delivering to the early church. He says, listen, I, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But he's also saying, let's hold on to your hope. You can have hope in Jesus Christ. So last night, um, after I preached this sermon, um, my son Cameron came over, and I want you to know just something about Cameron. Some you've heard me talk about Cameron. Um, he's our youngest son. He's just turned twenty. He's twenty-two, and he is. Um, you know, we've been on this long journey with Cameron, and he's really struggled with the anxiety and depression for a long time. But he's doing really, really well. And we're so grateful. Don, I thank God every day that God continues to heal our son. So we had him over for dinner. He's actually moved out. We're grateful for that. So, um, and so uh, grateful that, well, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> we're grateful that he's mature enough to be on his own. Okay, let's put it that way. All right. So we're, we, Don invited him over for dinner. And so we're, we're sitting at dinner and he says, so dad, what'd you preach on tonight? And I said, well, I, you know, I preached on faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And he says, oh, hope. And then he, and then, so Cameron's a very old soul when, it, and he's our, my philosopher, he's my poet, he's just always thinking in a much deeper level. And so he focused in on the word hope. And this is what he said. He says, you know, dad, you cannot find hope in yourself. And so then I pushed him a little bit on that. And I said, so where's that coming from, Kim? And what does that mean when you can't find hope in yourself? And we talked a little bit about that. And then I said, so my next question was, where do you find hope? He says, well, you, can, you only find hope in something else or someone else like God. I said, okay, that's pretty powerful, Kim. So you can't find hope in yourself he said, yeah, you know, I, I searched that. I, I realized that. I've done my own kind of own my own soul searching on that, and I realized I can't find hope in myself, but I can't, I can't find it in God. And then he said, and then I asked him, and I kind of pushed him. I said, so Cameron, tell me where that is really coming from. And he says, well, Dad, it comes from my own sense of hopelessness. See, he's writing from a deeper, deeper level. Because if you've ever gone through depression or anxiety, and I know there are people in this room that have gone through it or in it right now, I know that you've got a grandchild or a son or a daughter or someone in your life that has gone through some form of depression and they feel a sense of hopelessness. But according to my son, who's been there and understands the depth of darkness, and depression, he's coming at it a, as a really powerful place when it comes to the sense of hope. I got that all over a chicken dinner last night. Pretty deep stuff, right? So uh, Rick Warren wrote a book. I don't know if you read it a few years ago. And um, 
It was called a purpose-driven life. I think it only served, I think it sold about 35 or 50 million copies. Okay, I read the book. I love the book. And you know what's interesting? Because the time I sermon today is a, a meaningful, driven life. And so what's interesting is that when you get to the First Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, this is what Paul is, he's basically saying, if you want to have a meaningful life, he gives us kind of these, these little nuggets that we're supposed to draw upon. And so what I, I thought was really interesting um, when I was, I went back and read the first part of the chapter here, the very first chapter of the, uh, Paul, uh, uh, the Purpose Driven Life. So what's very interesting, the very first quote that, that Rick Warren wrote about is from, guess who? Paul. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. Colossians. Then he goes on to say, I love this. Let me just read one little paragraph. He says, you know what? It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace or mine, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, it must begin with God. You were born by his purposes and for his purposes. The search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin in the wrong starting point, ourselves. We ask, our, we ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be or what should I do with my life? What are my goals or my ambitions or my dreams or my future? But focusing on ourselves will never reveal our life's purpose. The, the Bible says it is God who directs the lives of his creatures. Every, everyone's life is in his power. He says, I once got lost in the mountains, and when I stopped to ask for directions to the, to the campsite leader, I was told this, you can't get there from here. You must start from the other side of the mountain. In the same way, you cannot arrive at your life's purpose by starting with a focus on yourself. You must begin with God, your creator. You exist only because God wills that you exist. You were made by God and for God. Until you understand that, life will never make sense. Kind of reminds me of a little quote from my little son, Cameron. You know, Dad, you can't find hope in yourself. It's got to come from somewhere else. Like God. So I love what Rick Warren talks about the meaningful life. Then I have, you know, let me give you like Harold's interpretation of a meaningful life. You know, um, last few, several years I have done the baccalaureate. So I didn't do it last year, but for numerous years when the kids come here and we have a connection with the village charter school, I always talk about the 10, I call them the 10 words, 10 most important words you need to learn in life. Matter of fact, can you put those up on the screen here? And so let me teach for a second. So these are what Harold's words live by in your life. I'm sorry, please forgive me. If you want to remain married, these two you need to learn real quick. Okay, right? I'm sorry, please forgive me. Uh, thank you, and um, I love you. All right, so these are kind of Harold's words that kind of live by. I always encourage the kids. I said, if you really want to be successful in life, these are Harold's meaningful words for life. So you need to learn them, you know? I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you, thank you. Those are really important words. So what Paul says, and I think it's really, really important, and you get to the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he once again, he talks about if you want to have a meaningful life, you need to focus on these things. So keep that next slide up. And so here's the really interesting thing. And so um, this is the first thing he says. I'm kind of working backwards here. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, 22. 
Examine everything carefully and hang on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. Can you say that with me? Okay, you ready? Examine everything carefully and hang on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. Okay. So um, what's really interesting about that, examine everything carefully. So Paul is writing to this early church and and he's saying, listen, you need to really um, examine what people are trying to tell you, right? You need to think about you know, check your brain at the door, make sure you really are thinking because people might try to be tricking you or they might try to be deceiving you. And so where is that coming from? Okay, so if you go back to the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, can you put the next slide up? Paul is actually making it very clear because listen, the early, those people who are out to get Paul, they're throwing him on their best, they're actually lying about him. So he says, once again, I appeal, um, our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure, um, uh, uh, impure motives or trick. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to deceive you. They are, but I'm not. Then he goes on and says, hey, hey when, when we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext of greed. In other words, I'm not greedy. They might be, but I'm not trying to get your money. So let's take that off the board. And number three things, hey, listen, we preach God's good news to you while we work night and day. And so we, were, we'd be, we wouldn't even be a burden. So what is Paul talking about? He says, we weren't trying to be a burden. You weren't trying to take advantage of it. We weren't trying to con you. We weren't trying to be greedy. So they're accusing me of doing all these things. But listen, once again, check your brain in the door. I'm not, I'm trying to tell you the good news. I'm trying to give you a, a sense of hope and joy and love and peace. So don't be deceived by what they're trying to trick you into believing that I'm really I'm not who I really am. So it's always good to be able to really think through. And that's the reason why I really spend a lot of time when I do my sermon preparation. So looking at commentaries and reading things or people who are a whole lot smarter than me and trying to give you the best interpretation of the scripture and to be able to make sure that it's what I really believe what between me and the Holy Spirit and what, the, what I've read, it's, I'm trying to give you the best information that I've gleaned from and, and great theology. And so this is really, really important. Don't be deceived. So my son, Luke, bless his heart, you know, he did, got his doctorate the other day in um, clinical psychology. So he's got this job. He's got a pretty good gig. He's uh, working at the um, mental health facility in downtown Hartford, Connecticut, at the hospital down there. It's a really prestigious hospital, and he's got a really, really great job. And so then he decided he wants to kind of do some moonlighting, make a little extra money, and he's teaching at the University of Connecticut, UConn. And so he's an adjunct professor. So um, this last week, he taught his first class. So um, I, I said, so I called him up after he did his first class because I was just being a nervous dad. And I said, so how'd it go? And he says, well, dad, I was pretty nervous. And I think they knew that. And I said, okay. And I said, I would compare it to my first sermon. You know, and I said, Luke, it's going to be okay. Uh, you're going to get through this. Um, I'm sure eventually you can, uh, you know, uh, you'll be able to kind of figure this whole thing out. And I said, so Luke, let me ask you something. When you got up and began your first class you've ever taught in your whole life, did you tell them a little bit about yourself? And I said, he says, yeah, I told them what my little bit of my, about my background and a few of my interests and blah, 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 blah. I said, great. Did you ask them the same question? I hadn't thought about that. I said, okay, so here's the interesting thing, Luke. And I said, people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. So I said, if you want to actually kind of win over your kids and that they begin to trust you, ask them three questions. So here are the three questions that 
old man Harold Hendren gave dad's advice. What is your name? What are you studying at school? And uh, what's one of your favorite things to do? So the, about the next two or three days later, I called Luke. I said, Luke, did you have that conversation with your kids? He said, yeah, I did. I said, what'd you do? He says, I asked him those questions. I said, that's great. How'd it go? He says, Dad, I got to meet him in my hands, right? <laughs> so, and so what's beautiful is that he gained their trust by asking. And, and you, when you gain someone's trust, it's because you sh- took the time to learn something about them and their name and identity and what they're interested in. So what's very interesting is that you, you know, once again, that, that's a great quote. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And once you find out that someone really cares about you, then you gain trust in them, and then you actually begin to, you have a much better opportunity that they actually buy into what you're teaching them. I thought this is interesting is that once again, you know, when you think about kind of checking things at the door, true story this last week, because you can't just take things for, um, for uh, just take them for granted. Um, so this last week, I got this letter, true story from Harris, Eckler and Associates. I think it's some, either some kind of law firm or um, some kind of private eye thing. And so they have a case number here. I got this and, and, and it actually has a, my address that came to my address here. But then they have a case number from my old address in Point Beach, which is 11, 12 years ago. So then they said to me, and basically they, um, they're this kind of... Um, outfit that they actually find lost money evidently and somehow it's connected to my name because my name is connected to this lost money blah 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 and they say hey listen we have found $162.08 for you Mr. Hendren and you can claim it as long as you just give us your passport number I'm thinking really So not only do they want my passport, but they want my driver's license as well, and they probably want my social security. You know, I'm like no way, no way. You're gonna, for 162 bucks, I'm gonna give you my passport number, right? So once again, people are always fishing, right? Looking for ways to maybe possibly take advantage of you, and you have to kind of use some common sense. And that's exactly what Paul is reaching out to this early church and saying, listen. This idea, examine everything, careful everything, be careful, hang on to what is good, avoid evil. I thought this was a really powerful quote. Um, I shared this last night. And um, it's, a, it's a story about Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was an African-American, great American philosopher, preacher, writer, and civil rights uh, leadership. And um, he referred to his grandmother, and, um, who was a slave. And um, this is his grandmother talking. She said, you know, during the days of slavery, the, um, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. The old man, old man McGee was so mean that he would not let the Negro minister preach to his slaves. Always the white minister used his text, something from the Apostle Paul. At least three or four times a year, he used as his text, slaves be obedient to them that they are your masters as unto Christ. Then we would go on, he would go on and and show us how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. And then she goes on and says, and I promise my maker that I've ever learned how to read and I've ever got my freedom, it ever came my way. 
I would not read that part of the Bible ever again. Man, that was good. Powerful. So once again, what is Paul really talking about? People taking something that he had written and taken out of context and using it to manipulate the slaves in the early, late 1800s and making them believe that their place is actually God's will. And yet, that is really has nothing to do with God's will. I mean, when you think about it, you know, you have, and I, I used this analogy before, I, I love this, this is a filter, right? You put coffee in it, and you put the water in it, and it streams down, and then you get a hot, really great piece of, get a nice cup of coffee. And so, you know, Jesus is our filter. And if you look at the way that Jesus looked, Jesus says, love just as I have loved you. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto me, under you. Jesus talks about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, when you get to that, Jesus Christ, can I be meant on that? Jesus is our filter. Okay, so here's the last couple of things today, and I want to talk about, so rejoice, can you put that up on the screen, rejoice always, pray continually, so here we go, and so there's a lot to be talked about in this story, this part of, the, of my message today, so rejoice, can you say this with me, participation in the part of the sermon, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in every situation, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, okay, so rejoice always, so let's just start there real quick, so the idea of rejoice always, Always. Oh, I'm gonna, let me go back to my screen. Can you put that next slide up? I'm sorry. So here's the interesting thing about the word rejoice. In the Greek, it has to do with this kerit, and kerit comes from the root word of those curious. The kerit means curious, from which we have the word charismatic. Okay, so then the word also is a derivative of the word when it comes to rejoice, is connected to the word charis, which is the word grace. And grace is is a gift that we do not receive. Amen on that. Okay. And so what's, and we don't deserve it. And so in other words, when we think about rejoice always is to be able to look around at the world and recognize that life is a gift. We get all that from one word, rejoice. So when we think about rejoice always, Paul is saying, listen, we should really appreciate each and every day because every day is truly is a gift from God. And so listen, let me tell you something. I, I have, I know this sounds, maybe sounds a little shallow, but I really believe there are two different types of people in the world. I believe that there are givers and takers. And I believe that there are people who see life as a gift. And I see some people who see life as really they're entitled to life. See, their life is a gift or entitlement. For example, I was reading this last week, and um, I, I shared this with you several years ago. There was a movie out by, um, called All the Money in the World, and it was about J. Paul Getty. J. Paul Getty, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, he was, I guess, uh, he was the wealthiest man in the world. He was worth well over a billion dollars, okay? So, um, and so, you, as you remember, J. Paul Getty, he had a grandson. J. Paul Getty III was actually kidnapped, right? And there was a ransom, and I think they asked for $17 million. So J. Paul Getty says, I ain't paying it. I'm not paying it. He negotiated him down to like $2.2 million because he could write it off his taxes. <laughs> Knew that was the maximum he could write off his taxes. So that was the number they actually settled on. Then he actually, he paid most of it, then his son had to pay $800,000 of the ransom. He made his son, his own, J. Paul Getty II, pay it, and he 
promised he had to pay him back at 4% interest. And then when he find, when that grandson was finally released, if you remember the story, the grandson was fine. He wasn't killed, but he was traumatized for the rest of his life. And um, when he was, a, I guess he was maybe a teenager, he called his grandfather, J. Paul Getty, up and wanted to thank him for actually getting him out um, of this um, bondage. And J. Paul Getty didn't even take the time to take the phone. Wow. It's amazing. Okay, there are people who go through life who see life as a precious gift and there are people who see life in a perspective that they're entitled. Okay, so let me give you another example. Um, can you put that next picture up? So J. Paul Getty in the second picture is a guy, can you put the next one up? That's J. Paul Getty. A guy named Billy Graham. Anybody know him? Anybody heard of him? So Billy Graham looked at life totally different. So Billy Graham didn't look at life as as something that he was entitled to. Billy Graham saw life as a grace gift. So I went and found these two quotes, and I thought they're really different perspectives on life. This is what J. Paul Getty says. If you can actually count your money, then you are not really a rich man. Versus Billy Graham who says, when wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, all is lost. Two different perspectives, right? And both these people in their prime, about the exact same time, were two totally different perspectives on how you want to look at life. And Paul, once again, reminds us today, examine everything, careful everything, be careful about how you look at it. But he says, listen, it's so important to be able to, once again, put it in perspective about when, when we think about rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in every situation because God's will is in Christ Jesus. Now, I was flipping through my phone this week and I thought this was a really interesting quote and it was by a guy by the name of Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett had a different perspective on this whole thing and Warren Buffett had a very interesting and powerful quote and this is right by Warren Buffett, he's only worth $107 billion. This is what he had to say. So here's the fourth richest person on the planet. I know many people who have a lot of money and they get testimonial dinners, and they get hospital wings named after them. But the truth is that nobody in the world loves them. That's the ultimate test of how you have lived your life. The more you give love away, the more you get. The more you give away love, the more you get. Okay. So here's the last little things that we think about. Paul, once again, he talks about, and Paul talks about pray continually or pray without ceasing and so when you think about that it's very powerful when um does Paul literally mean that we're supposed to be like in this constant flow and we can continue I can't pray all the time but what Paul is really means is that are we constantly in communication or connected to God or through the gift of the Holy Spirit y'all with me so there's this idea that, you know, there's this flow to life and that I continue to feel as if that the presence of Christ is in my life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so there is this kind of ultimately at every, every turn of our life that we, Paul has encouraged us to when to pray without ceasing is a means that we continue to be connected to the gift of the Holy Spirit to God. That makes sense to me, right? So where do we find that in our lives, right? I mean, this is really what Paul is. So for example, this last week, um, I did men's breakfast. Um, uh, We did it on the walk to Emmaus. And so um, I woke up um, at uh, 3.30 in the morning and all of a sudden had this thought. And I started thinking about, okay, so we have the last supper. And then I thought, 
okay, but then we got the first supper. And, they, and you all are thinking, huh, what's that mean? So we had the last supper, which has everything to do with the sacrifice, that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God. And then we have the first supper after Jesus' resurrection. And because, see, you know, there's this walk to Emmaus, two guys are walking along, Jesus is walking along, and he's, hey, and he begins a conversation, and they, he asks them about how their day was, and he says, well, don't, where, you've been like living on a rock, don't you know what happened? They, they crucified our, our Savior, and he's come back to life. We heard this to the women that came to the well, and, and Jesus all of a sudden begins to begin to teach them, and then they finally sit down at supper, and as he, once again, at supper, they incurred, hey, listen, and so Jesus, once again, he, he takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he gives the bread. And then if you go back and look at the detail, and this is what I taught in the men's breakfast, is that once he gave the bread away, the Bible says that their eyes were open. And once again, as I remind you, why were their eyes open? They finally realized it was Jesus. When Jesus gave them the bread, they could see the hands, see his hands. They could see the holes in his hands. So why in the world would I wake up at 3.31 besides go to the bathroom, right? And all of a sudden, I'm starting thinking about, I never had thought about that. There's the last supper, but then there's the first supper. It's the first supper after Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead, and that points to everlasting life. Can I amend on that? Yeah. So, Jesus, so there's this idea of connecting with God, to pray without ceasing, and the idea of rejoicing always. And here's the last little thoughts for the day, and I'll wrap this up. And so it has to do with, once again, about being grateful and being thankful. And, what, and the very focus of our prayers has to do with the word thankfulness. And by the way, we get the word thankful, which we get the derivative of the Greek word is the word Eucharist. And where do we find the Eucharist? We find the Eucharist in the Last Supper. And Jesus, once again, encourages us every single day that we should be able to look at life as a gift and we should rejoice in the gift because we really aren't entitled to that gift, but it's a grace gift. Can I man on that? And the last two things that Paul teaches in for us today, Paul says, comfort the discouraged and help the weak. I love that. Matter of fact, Eugene Peterson's uh, interpretation, when he writes in the message, he talks about helping those who are exhausted. Let me ask you something. Does anybody in this room know someone who's exhausted? And so maybe what we need to be is a Barnabas. A Barnabas, was, actually his first name was Joseph and his name was changed to Barnabas and Barnabas was an encourager. So maybe your homework assignment as you go forth these doors today is if you know someone who is just needs to be comforted because they're exhausted, maybe it's a neighbor or a family member or someone you know, maybe you can be that encourager. That's what Paul's saying here. And the last thing that Paul says for us to think about today, he says, make sure you no one repeats a wrong with a wrong, but always pursue the good for each, each other and for everyone else. In other words, Peter says, do not return evil for evil or insult or for insult, but the blessing instead. And so um, I, uh, I thought this was really powerful. So this two nights ago, <clears throat> I was, there was a breaking news. It was on Friday night, and it was about Tyree Nichols. They released the, um, and Ellen just talked about this in her prayer. Tyree Nichols was um, brutally um, um, beaten up by five police officers, and, um, and then he died. And so they were going to actually release the footage. And I, I, I mean, I'll tell you what, I watched part of it, but I couldn't watch all of it. It was just too horrific. But I, what I did watch was the interview of his mother. 
And his mother said, she says, after this video, she said it just before the video was about to come out. She says, my hope is there's not rioting in the streets over this. My hope, because she said, you're not going to bring back my son. So I thought it was a classic illustration of what the Paul was talking about and saying, we don't, once again, and what Peter talks about, you can't just, once again, return evil for evil. It just doesn't work. It's just a perpetual evil cycle. It's not good. And that's exactly what she was saying. So here's what we think about today, and I think it's really, really powerful, is that there's this rhythm to life. Can you put that last slide up for me today, if you could, please? So here's where we've been today. So examine everything in your life carefully. Hold on to the good and return away from what is bad. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in every circumstance, encourage and help one another and return goodness when you've been, even when you've been wrong. Why did we do this? Because once again, as Rick Warren says, it ain't about you. It's about faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. It's about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the hand of God. God the Son who is the Lamb of God. And God who is the Holy Spirit, the Dove of God. And we take all that and we take all and move that forward for the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ. Because once again, it's all about him.